Hi, and welcome to episode 46 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is John Wolseley. He's one of Australia's most important artists. He betrays the Australian landscape and ecosystems from the roots of a tree to a whole floodplain, from trees, birds and fish to a tiny beetle. He uses a variety of techniques to create, as he says, a kind of infantry or document of the state of the earth, revealing both the energy and beauty of it. To do that, he physically immerses himself in nature. He spent long periods at a time camping and observing the country from Tasmania to central Australia to Arnhem Land. He's had over 25 solo shows and the exhibition Midawa Harvest is currently travelling around the country. A collection of his stunning works and those of Aboriginal elder Mulkan Wirapanda, with whom he's developed a special bond over many years. His work is held in most major Australian public art institutions and, of course, many private collections. But probably the most interesting part of our conversation is where he talks about literally collaborating with nature to produce his work. All the paintings we talk about are on the website, talkingwithpainters.com, and there are also links to things we talk about in the show notes. The interview was recorded at Australian Galleries in Melbourne during the gallery's opening hours, so that will explain any background noise. And we start with John telling me about his early years in England. Well, I, I grew up in the deep valleys and country of the West Country in England, um, in Zomerzet. Uh, oh, yeah. Zomerzet you pronounce with Zs because if you were brought up in, in, in Zomerzet, you spoke like this. It is merry where all folk do go, thought the ground by two and two, <laughs> and when they're haymaking and things like that. So, yes, so there I was in Zomerzet, and my father was, a, was an artist. Ah, oh, okay. So I, I had art thrust down my, my throat from an early... Oh, okay. Yeah. What sort of artist was he? He painted portraits and society portraits. The interesting thing here is, or the terrible thing here is, is that because he was a very, very old-fashioned painter, when I, uh, at the age of 19, went to Paris to do etching at, at, at Atelier d Set, mm. um, and I came back at the age of 19 and showed him my work, um, he, as well as being a drunk, <laughs> hated, my, hated my work. And uh, I have terrible memories of him looking across the table at me at lunch. And he'd say, how could a son of mine paint this dreadful modern art? This, <laughs> I, I, uh, so, so, that, so what sort of effect did that have on you? Oh, I think it made me become more rabidly um, avant-garde, uh, which, of course, I'm, I slowly started being less avant-garde as I got older. And what made you decide to come to Australia? I've answered that question lots of times, and I, I'm, I've, I've given so many answers. <laughs> <that> <laughs> I, I can never remember what is really the 
the right one. I, I think the, the 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 right one was that I just I'd was finding myself unable to paint the landscape in England, partly because it was it had it had it had been so um, gardened and destroyed uh, by industrial things, uh, but. It, um, well, Max Beerbohm said, living in the English countryside is like living inside a great big green lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> and so you don't actually, it, it, it is very much a construct in lots mm. of ways. Mm. And so I, I wanted to go to a place where um, you could see the bones of the landscape and I, I thought where the natural ecosystems were still firing away. Mm. So at the moment we're in Australian galleries here in Melbourne. Yes. And I've just had a look at your magnificent exhibition of, um, called Life of Inland Waters, which is absolutely beautiful. And I understand that's an extension of your time when you were in East Arnhem Land. I think it was in last year, in 2017. No, oh, let, let me tell you how, how it all happened, because it's, it's, in some ways it's almost the greatest adventure of my life, <laughs> this whole East Arnhem Land uh, thing. Yeah. And it started really, I, I think it could be sort of six years ago, yeah. uh, when Nomad Art Gallery, Angus and Rose Cameron, uh, asked if I would be part of a group of artists, uh, four, of, four not from... Arnhem Land, and four from um, uh, Yakala and Baniala, and and then of, of the Yongu people, there was um, Jambua Marawili and Manila, and then there was um, uh, Mulkan Wapanda. There was a resulting wonderful exhibition which toured all around Australia. That's right. Um, and um, during it, uh, Milken Wapanda, uh, I helped her, she helped me find some of the plants. Mm -hmm. And on the last day, she said, uh, would I like to be her wawa or brother? Uh, so um, you, you developed a connection with Milken, with Milken. over that period? Yes. And it, it was at that period that she'd st already started to do amazing, she's uh, amazing paintings, all of the edible plants. Mm, and and right. the reason for this was that she wanted to pass on her knowledge of these plants because she says, my people are dying mm. uh, because they're not eating the right food. And all the, 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 the knowledge of the, these edible plants w was being lost. Yeah. Um, but the other thing was, I think, that she wanted to pass on the, the great stories, of the, the great cultural knowledge of these plants, mm. uh, so that every one of her paintings uh, uh, is not just a painting of a plant like a white fella might do if they did a painting. Uh, 
It's a, a knowledge of a plant which has got, is embedded in a, the most astonishing uh, mythic stories mm. Um, mm. and is, is part of their, their great spiritual tradition. That's right. Mm. So that, I think uh, out of that experience, that, that, that's where the um, amazing exhibition Midawa Harvest was born. And that was at the National Museum of Australia in December last year, and it's touring the country. And yes. that, is, that, that is the art of you and uh, Mulkan Wirupanda. Yeah. And, and it's those amazing uh, plants that she's identified, and she's done a painting of each one. She'd done about 130 of these barks, mm. and some wonderful people bought them all and donated to the, to the National Museum of Australia. And then I had been busy doing a 10-metre painting, mm. woodcutter and watercolour, mm. of all those plants. Well, that can we talk about that work a little mm. bit? Um, so you, you created this... 10 metre long uh, work, which is work on paper. Yep. Um, and it, it's called Distant Glimpses of the Great Floodplain Seen Through a Veil of Trees and Hanging Vines. And it, it is an amazing work of the trees, vines, and monsoon forest on the edge of a floodplain um, mm. in that area. And, yeah. and it includes a lot of those plants that Dunwalkin that, um, had painted. Yes. Um, how did that work develop? Um, well, I started off painting, let's say, a two-metre-high, metre or broad painting of a chunk of rainforest tree with climbers going down mm -hmm. or up and vines coming down mm. and then on the ground one of these vines would be originating from a um, wonderful yam. So I did that, then I do the another one and then I realised that actually I had this veil, I was, I was building up a sort of frieze or veil or screen mm. of trees through which you could see this hugely sacred and important uh, floodplain. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, floodplains are the, 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 where in the wet, vast amounts of water go down from the hills, down, 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 50 kilometers, 100, you know. Right. Um, and they, this floodplain is the subject, you could say, of all the amazing paintings that the great artists of the area are, are painting. So you, you, we're talking here about probably the, the most important Aboriginal artists alive today. Mm. You know, when they talk about, uh, there's this word, the dream time, which is almost a possible word to translate. Uh, what they're talking about is the forces that made them. And so mm. there I was, staring out at this floodplain. Why on earth should I, a sort of balander white fella, almost had no right to paint that. Uh, but then I hit on this idea 
that I could be painting the screen or veil of trees on the edge of the floodplain, mm. and I could give distant glimpses into it. Mm. And, and you see, through those glimpses in that painting, you can see the, the crocodile nests floating, all of the crocodile nests, and then the, the sacred banyan trees, giant fig trees, mm. which are, you know, the, the banyan trees, the one the Buddha had his epiphanies under. Oh, yeah. And then huge middens, you know, middens made through thousands of years. So you're, you're looking at a fabled, powerful landscape. Mm. Uh, but I, I could only have little glimpses through it. Was that, did you decide on that uh, perspective at the outset of the, before you started the painting? Mm, no, I don't think I did. <laughs> no, I think it, I, by the time I'd done three of these panels, I realized that, uh, that that's what I was painting. Mm. Because, uh, yes, and, and then, I, oh, then I thought, oh, well, I do lots and lots more, mm. and then put in the, the floodplain in the distance. And so that in these paintings downstairs, again and again, I've got uh, that kind of unity. In other words, the, there's a painting there called Buakul, which is a, a particularly marvelous, yes, this one here. Mm -hmm. oh, Buakul yes, that's climbing beautiful. a tree yep. beside the great flood pain plain of Garanali. I'll just uh, describe what we're looking at because for people who are listening, uh, yeah. it's it's a quite a large pain. It's over two metres high. And it's uh, it's got a plain, as in P-L-A-I-N, in the background with, yes. a, with a bit of a, a sort of a hill range. And But in the foreground is a beautiful tree uh, with vines sort of entwining around it. Yes, it's... it's um at the, at the very bottom, can you see there's all those roots? Yes. Uh, um, and then it uh, starts to wind around the tr trunk underneath the bark, and then it has swellings, which are these wonderful tubers, which are very delicious to eat. And then a bit further up, it winds up, and then it uh, uh, is re getting into the sun, and then it puts out incredible flowers and further up they turn into fruit and so in this painting you've got its development in time from root um, to tuber up to leaves and then mm. then the flower then the flower uh, metamorphosing into a fruit, and then it dropping down to the ground again, and the whole thing starting off again. Mm. In other words, this is... So it's like a cycle. A whole cycle, a whole system. Mm. And you've got an absolutely beautifully delicate use of uh, watercolour in that. Do you use a lot of washes in, that, in those sort of paintings? There's a certain amount of woodcut in, in there, but that's, that's related to watercolour used um, 
in a, in a way that I feel is using the medium of watercolor in, in the way it wants to, to be used. That's to say, I, I, the most wonderful thing about watercolor is that it, if you splosh it with lots of water, it sort of does all manner of things. It reticulates and then it becomes stronger and then it, and then it, 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 it has this wonderful way of fading away. Mm. Um, and do you I've, find that you let it do what it wants to do, or do you try and control it? Um, I think that I sometimes paint almost like an old-fashioned watercolorist, so I'm actually using the, the fact that it's watery and, and wonderfully kind of expressive. Um, but other times, I'm trying to cooperate with the tree. Uh, you know, I'm hoping I'm talking a lot about cooperation and, and collaboration here. Uh, very often, we artists, don't we, we stand and look at the tree and we uh, stare at it and then we do our version of it. You know, when you see someone painting or drawing, they're looking at the tree and they're drawing there and they're looking up there and drawing there. And they might be, they're doing a beautiful drawing. Um, and, but they're, they're often, it's often quite sort of objective and, um, now, I, I have hit on this idea right through the, uh, this exhibition mm. uh, of actually getting the tree and finding ways in which the tree and me can make the painting. So in this case, I would get a whole swag of this climber with lovely leaves and fruits, mm. um, and I found a way of inking it up with watercolour, mm. plonking it on the paper, and there's, there's various secret te technical things involved here um, in which I plonk it on the paper and then I've done various things on top of that with my watercolour, with masses of liquid watercolour. Um, what do you uh, mean? What do you mean? What do you do on top of um, that? I paint round it and I, I pour things and I... I um, um, oh, so the leaf work is into there. it. Oh. The leaf's sticking on it. Yeah. And uh, then there's... Two or three other secret things I do. <laughs> uh, then I put this very expensive uh, paper on top of it, oh. uh, and then I put overnight. I put the um, uh, solar panels or bits of hardboard mm. on it. Leave it overnight. Oh, to keep it down, to keep it yes. compressed. And right. then in the morning, there's a magical thing. I climb down out of my camper truck. The, that I have on top of my Toyota. I climb down and I lift the uh, solar panel up and then I slowly lift the paper up and then I take off the now dry tree and lo and behold, there's oh. an imprint of the thing. Now that's, that's one of them. And then I'd say this was a very kind of instinctive, physical, uh, aleatoric kind of thing. And then I do my uh, anally retentive white fella drawing <laughs> over the top as well. No, oh, not on, no next no. door to it. If you move across, you could move across. If you look at the, the back 
ground. There's lots of reeds and uh, uh, rake and different plants in the water, which yes. I've done by rubbing uh, an, another technique. And then you'd move into where there's a, a lot of drawing. There's a system of traditional graphite drawing, and then that morphs into this other, much more liquid flowing yes. thing. Oh, so the drawing that you're referring to is, is sort of on the trunk of the tree that we're looking at. Yeah. Yes. Right, so it's a combination of this, like a sort of making impressions with the, with the actual with the actual plant that it is depicting. That's right. Yeah. And, and in fact, what I like, the way I put it is that in a painting like this, um, you've got five or six systems. Now, by system, I mean uh, something which is using a particular medium in the way it wants to be used. So that, you know the way a, a, a wonderful pencil drawing has this uh, uh, sort of wonderful sort of strange quality. Um, but what interests me is when it's then juxtaposed with another system, and then it flows into even another system, which might be woodcut. Can we talk about also about ways that you do enter into nature? Because I've read that you, that walking is a really important part for you to actually get to know a new, say you enter a new landscape, say the desert. How important is walking for you to uh, familiarise yourself? Um, I think that um, the physical relationship to the landscape uh, is so important in that, say, walking, when I go to a place very often, um, I, I'm usually camping in it, so I'm actually sleeping in my swag underneath a tree, surrounded by spinifex, let's say. Mm -hmm. There's water courses and there's, there's uh, might be a, a, a cliff and then, then there might be um, a, a stony plain, let's say. Um, I've spent several days just sort of following my bliss, walking about and investigating it. And I think it's almost like you're discovering the place with your feet and then occasionally stopping and looking at the microcosm, which is in a miniature version of the whole landscape. So you're bending over and holding it, touching it. Mm. But then I go back to my camp where I probably got a book which uh, investigates the landscape in another way. In other words, it's a, 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 a flower book, a plant book. Mm. And so it actually says, well, this particular plant um, has a yam which goes down like that. And, 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 and then I go off is with often as in the, in this book with Mulcan and we dig the yam up <laughs> mm. and, and then we cook it and then we eat it so I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is that 
I've, when I'm making a painting, I'm, I'm, I'm playing and I'm, I'm being extremely tactile and um, uh, uh, what's the word? Exper experiential. Mm. Yeah. We were talking about the work Beetles in the Salt Lake Tyrrell. And actually, I should, yes. I should say, actually, with this current uh, exhibition, you've got sort of two themes that are extending on from that harvest exhibition. So yes. uh, one is about the in insects and insect life, and the other is more about the water, inland waters. Yes. Um, and, this, and this painting that uh, we're talking about now is called Beetles in the Salt Lake Tyrrell, and it's... It's a very abstract, in my view, sort of painting, beautiful watercolour and etching on paper um, it, with, with sort of pools of watercolour and, and here and there some small insects, uh, beetles actually. And one thing that you've said about the insects, which I find very interesting, is that you've tried very hard to be an insect in order to, to paint the insects. What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, it started when I read a, a wonderful Buddhist poem. Jap it was a Japanese poem, artist who said that in order to paint a cicada, you've actually got to become a cicada. Now, <laughs> Now, this sounds rather a sort of strange thing, but the kind of thing that they're talking about that is well described by an amazing writer called Jacob von Uxel, mm. who wrote a book called Forays into the Life World of Insects and Animals. Now, and in that, uh, he describes about as how, as a scientist, you've got to somehow get in, see if you can get into the mindset of, let's say, of an insect. What we're what we're talking about here mm. is what a lot of, say, poets do. You know, the, the most wonderful po poems about, let's say, a, an insect or a bird. You feel the poet is is, is almost seeing the world from the bird's po point of view, mm. say. Mm. Um, can I read this poem by Seamus Heaney mm. about a, a sand martin? You know, sand martins are those wonderful things that uh, they are related to swallows, and you see them flying around, and then they have nests in a bank of a river. Oh. Um, yeah. And, of course, um, we... This doesn't make much sense to someone who hasn't actually seen a San Martin, because now, of course, we experience nature through the computer. Yeah, yeah. That is so that's true. a whole other story. <laughs> so, uh, I, what I find with students is completely fascinating. Is that I say something like a cicada, or talk about a cicada, or, or let's say a mole cricket, which is the thing that makes those loud noises in your garden every oh, night. Yeah. And, of course, none of them really looked at them because they've only seen them in David Attenborough's film. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I just Well, unless thought, you find a dead one, it's a bit hard to sort of find them. 
It, well, it is, unless you, you've actually learnt to look. You know, I could go out now and find you describe moths and six... Yeah. I hope well, I wouldn't well, find I you a bush tick. <laughs> <laughs> but one of, well, I suppose that's one of the things that you do is that you spend a lot of time looking. And, and experiencing, yes. And, and, um, yeah, but, yeah. The, 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 so this is a poem by Seamus Heaney, the great Irish poet, about a, a, San, a San Martin, and which I feel he's, he's got into San Martin-ness, being a San Martin. Yeah. Uh, just as in a second we'll talk about this one about one of my, my, my various paintings about beetles. Mm. So here we are. Fetch me the San Martin, skimming and veering, breast to breast with himself in the clouds in the river. So here we have, oh, he's got, he's got this picture of this bird flying above the water, breast to breast with himself in the clouds in the river. So you've got the sense that he's now with the San Martin and now he's reflected in the water. Yeah. And then it says, at the warm mouth of the hole, flight after flight after flight, the swoop of his wings gloved and kissed home. It went into the hole, it gloved and kissed home. Mm. And then he says, a glottal stillness an eardrum, far in, feather brains, tucked in silence, a silence of water, lipping the bank. And then he says, mould my shoulders inward to you, occlude me, be damp clay pouting, let me listen under your eaves. Now, these beetle things mm. um, uh, are all part of something that I'm called 101 Insect Life Stories. Mm. And in each one of these, I, th I think if we could look at a painting um, called Insect Life Stories number 14, Mm. Kamaruka grey box beetle. I'll tell you how I've done it, mm -hmm. but what I wanted to do was give a, a, a little biography of a beetle. Yeah. And what it, if you look at the middle of that, you'll see all the lines join up, don't they? Now, mm. just well, there. We should just describe this in case someone's driving and they can't see a picture of it. Yes, right. <laughs> um, so we, it's it's actually a relief print from found wood, isn't yes. it? So so what what we're seeing is sort of um, these these no oh, how would you describe that these lines curvy lines that are sort of circling around and and meandering along uh, along the paper. Um, there, it's actually the negative space, really, isn't it? Well, um, I, I think a good way of describing it to someone who's driving along and listening to this is it almost looks as though this bloody artist has got a hell of a spaghetti <laughs> oh, and true. put it on the paper and inked it up. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. That's a good way of describing right. it. But in fact... Cooked what, spaghetti, because it's sort of, you know... Yeah. yeah well, what like it actually cooking. is, is in the middle of the painting, the, there is... Um, the moth has come along in the night. Oh, yes. No, let, let, let's describe what, what this is an image of. Yes, yes. It's an image of the side of a tree. At a certain time in the night, a, a wasp, I mean, a beetle has gone and it's settled there. It's laid a hundred eggs. Each one um, hatched, hatched out over a period of days and headed in different directions. So it's really like all the spaghetti lines join there. And then it goes out. And if you look at the top half, you can actually follow one of these lines, and let's call this beetle grub Mabel. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Mabel has gone along like that. Next door, in fact, is her, her brother, Henry. They, and they, lie, they never cross over, but they're eating their way, they're engraving the wood as they go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. They're and eating they're, it, I yes. yes. So they've got these amazing little teeth, and as the hours go on and the days go on, they're slowly eating a channel under the bark. You see, this is under the bark. Mm. bark right, and then it's gone uh, off, off in that direction. And so so what we're bodies. seeing, so these spaghetti lines, what we're seeing is actually the cavity that's left behind after this beetle has chewed through exactly. the wood. Yep. And it's gotten bigger and bigger, that the spaghetti gets thicker and thicker as it goes along because the beetle, because uh, the insect gets bigger and bigger. Yep, yep. yep. And the, the exciting thing is that I found this, uh, and, and then lots of other people who are listening to this will have found this, if they get their wood from a wood merchant and they were about to put it on the fire and they suddenly realize that there's all these beautiful engravings all over the piece of wood. Well, you know what's interesting about this? Yeah. And it's it's sort of like the poem you just read because I was listening to the poem and and what in that poem the the poet was talking about the environment around the the animal and this is similar because yeah. it's the environment it's the home of the animal rather than the actual animal itself which you, says a lot about the animal. You're absolutely right. In fact, you're so right because um Jacob von Uxel, who is an anim animal behaviorist, uh, who's sent off, who, who lots of people followed afterwards about how do animals work, uh, he uh, talks about the environment with, with the German word Umwelt. Mm. Now, Umwelt, I think, means life world. Um, so, so the, uh, your environment, when you come out of your house in Sydney and you look at your garden, have you got a, a huge garden? I've got a little garden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's your environment. That's your, your life world. Because, in fact, part of it is that you might go and you might pick a plant or... Uh, some of the various cabbages that you grow. Uh, well, this umwelt, this 
the, the life world, that's to say the, the environment as it's seen by this beetle, is here. Now, one of the very interesting things about the way you work is your interaction, and sometimes you've called it collaboration with nature. And um, in particular, in, in 2015, there was a very significant uh, exhibition at the uh, National Gallery of Victoria called Headlands and Headwaters, um, in which you produced some phenomenal paintings and, and works. And there was one in particular that I that I really that stood out to me was that it's called ephemeral water with new growth, and that. It typifies what I'm talking about when I say collaborating with nature. Can you mm. can you talk a bit about that? Yes, I, I can. I, I, I think perhaps a, a way of uh, talking about this could relate to a bit what we were talking about earlier. I've tried to avoid the artist as hero uh, inventing things on the paper. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Lloyd Rees said something, and I, I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, well, it's a bit hard from the top of your head to try to remember a quote from Lloyd Rees, but yes. He said something like, uh, the artist does not so much invent as reconstruct. Now, that sounds a strange thing to say, but what it seems to be saying is that when the artist does a... a, a, Let's say Picasso is doing A Weeping Woman. Mm -hmm. um, His personality is coming into it very much. He's got certain kind of gestures and certain things that he does when when he's painting. But there is an an extraordinary distance between him and the thing he's painting. Now, I can explain this by saying that all the paintings that Picasso did of landscape after his early ones um, could have been of any landscape. They didn't have the particular quality or essence of of a given landscape or a given woman. well, because uh, they're, you mean they're it abstracted, and yes. they're kind of—it's the artist who's, who's sort of um, making art out of them, and all the time this takes the art further and further away from the actual nature of of, of the landscape or the woman. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I can explain this a little bit by saying that all oh, this might be very, very good. But I've, I've been trying to find ways in which I don't do that violent kind of transformation thing. I t- try and touch the land gently and get the land to say something back to me. Now, this, this again comes back to William Blake. Uh, he said, he that kisseth a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He that grabbeth himself a joy doth the heavenly life destroy. What he's saying is that um, we human beings um, 
must just gently kiss something or gently touch something and then we'll be able to get something of it rather than more kind of um, active ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the way I see this is this whole completely mad thing I've been doing for ages, which I call frotting. It comes from the frottera was, came from the old days when caressing animals and caressing gen generally, stroking, uh, was part of one's life. One's life was de dealing with horses, mm. uh, dogs, mm. and all, all these things. And um, so a frotterer was, in fact, a kind of horse whisperer. Oh. Now, so Rob Redford was a frotterer <laughs> in, in, the, in the film. Was it called The Horse Whisperer? Yeah, I can't remember what the name of it was. Well, it I know was. what you mean. But now I am sometimes bump into the odd person because I do a bit with horse people. Oh, yeah. Um, and there is a whole school training horses which is based on, it's got a name, it's called Natural Something Something. Oh, which, which deals with how to handle a horse. Uh, and how not to do a, keep a horse by digging spurs into it and whipping it and all that, but by a, a gentle coercion uh, and a, a lot of stroking. Now, how do I relate that to my art? Well, it all started when I was painting a burnt isopogon bush in the, National, in the Royal Park in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And I was doing really boring, rather ainly fixated, no, um, ainly retentive, sorry, <laughs> uh, drawing of this thing, and it was really boring. And then the wind blew this, my paper, onto the tree. And then when I picked it up, uh, it had absolutely magical... Um, it was a it's burnt sick. tree, wasn't it? Yes, well, yeah. that's right. That's right. So it was. So the burnt fingers of the tree had drawn themselves on the paper, had frotted themselves, had kissed themselves on the paper. So I went on doing lots and lots of that in all manner of ways. So that in mm. the painting we you, we're talking about, yeah, the ephemeral water with um, new growth. I took a huge sheet of paper, and with a friend dragged it gently, rhythmically, backward and forward across some burnt scrub. Oh. Um, and there, and, and you, there was no intention to create a specific marking with that? Were you more focused on the movement? It's a good question. In fact, what, ha what you do is you are a drawing, you are drawing the paper backwards and forwards, and you know that you're making a certain kind of line, but so that the tree there actually it looks like a tree, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. So we're looking like a charcoal type uh, Whereas mark. a lot of the things around have inscribed themselves on the paper, other twiglets and other things, mm. and, right? Um, and it's, it is, it's quite aleatoric. Now, aleatoric, um, I hope, 
I remember what it means. It means, it really is quite haphazard and, um, and loose and instinctive and um, ac ac quite accidental. Mm -hmm. But if you were a Buddhist or think in an Eastern way, there is, and, and you do the I Ching, there is no such thing as an accident. It's, it's all mm. part of the great flux of living. Mm. So, you see, what happens in these paintings is I, I then do, I, I build up the painting like that, and those the two, ex, the two bits on the top. Mm -hmm. Which are smaller pieces of paper. Are even more aleatoric because they were very expensive Fabriano sheets of paper, 50 of them, mm. which I threw into the burnt scrub in the Mallee, or the, might have been the Royal Park, and let drift around and draw themselves. I, I, this is about control. I'm, I'm trying to release my uh, male controlling, goal-orientated ego, or trying to relax it, and, and, and let it, things just happen. So that these pieces of paper, you, you threw them into the scrub, and then how long did you leave them there for? Uh, sometimes six months. Six months? Um, some of them. There's two that's in the collection of the, natural, of the uh, National Gallery of Victoria, which actually had started turning themselves into the ground They'd been there for so long, and they'd been there a year, about a year. And also, we're talking about um, your, the conditions in your studio. Uh, do you um, do you have a routine? Um, I sort of do, in, in that I spend the whole morning doing displacement activities <laughs> and avoiding starting work. So it's usually masses and masses of stupid things. So I, I often don't get painting until two or three in the afternoon, oh, and then end up not getting back just for supper till nine o'clock or something. All oh, right. Mm. So you, but you will go earlier. Like so, you spend a few hours just pottering about or whatever, just to get. In, into the mode of work? Yes, I think it is something to do with perhaps what we've been talking about a lot when I said something about being a cicada, uh, uh, which I wrote about in that thing, I think. Mm. Um, um, and that is that Heidegger, Heidegger has a... Um, a word, a German word, which is Stimmung, which is about being in tune. That, that, that the artist is someone who has to get into tune with that mountain or that cicada. Um, and so I think all this fidgeting around is some weird thing about getting into tune with the emotional, intuitive nature of the thing you're painting. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
John, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely delightful meeting you. And I've, I love your show and, um, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What an amazing artist. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Watch out for the accompanying video, which I'll put up on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel um, in, a, in a week or so. There'll also be a link to that on the website. There are also details of where you can see Midawa Harvest and John's upcoming show at Rosalind Oxley 9 Gallery in Sydney. Talking with Painters is also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter where you can keep updated on episodes and exhibitions of all my guests. Hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. In some ways, half of the point of my paintings is to express my absolute delight and love and uh, of all these creatures uh, uh, in order to show them to other people, because I've, I found them so completely fascinating, I, I want to show them to other people. <laughs>